the federal government basically goes in, uh, raids people who are having political meetings, arrests them all. The first round of raids, which is aimed at anarchists, is wildly popular and successful. And Hoover very dramatically uh, gets an old warship that they nickname the Soviet Ark, and they take these you know, 200 some anarchists and say, we're sending them back where they belong to Bolshevik Russia. J. Edgar Hoover. What does his life story illustrate about the nature of bureaucracy? What themes from McCarthyism and um, almost the entire history of the Cold War um, illustrate about sort of contemporary U.S.-China relations? And why does Hoover and the way he ran the FBI kind of remind me of Xi? To discuss, we have on Yale's Beverly Gage, who recently wrote, and I do not use this term lightly, a magisterial new biography of J. Edgar Hoover. Um, uh, Beverly, full disclosure, gave me an A on my undergrad senior thesis a de- over a decade ago. She said it was messy and unfinished, but there was too much stuff in it to mark me down, which I kind of feel like has been the tagline of my life for the past 10 years. Um, but anyways, neither here nor there. Beverly Gage, welcome to China Talk. It's great to be here. And I am relieved that I gave you an A uh, for, you know, your insight and brilliance, if not for dotting all your I's and crossing all of your T's. Very briefly, who is J. Edgar Hoover and why is he interesting? J. Edgar Hoover was one of the most important political figures in the 20th century of the U.S. And he was most notably head of the FBI, and he was head of the FBI for 48 years. So he has this amazing career that spanned the 1920s through the 1970s. He became director in 1924 under Calvin Coolidge and died in the same job in 1972 under Richard Nixon. And the story of the FBI is basically the story of his life. Yeah. And just for some some of our international listeners who haven't necessarily had that much FBI in their lives, he was instrumental in sort of McCarthyism, uh, or played an instrumental role in America's response to the Cold War, particularly on the home front, um, had a lot of uh, sort of mess involved in the um, American civil rights movement. And really, um, you know, also is is a lens to look at the sort of professionalization and upgrading of American national security and just like state capacity more general, turning what was something unimportant enough that they thought they could give a guy in his 20s responsibility for the the world's largest and most important investigative uh, criminal agency on the planet in world history. Um, So sort of seeing those threads as well as kind of what it means to basically govern as a, you know, can we say autocrat um, in the um, uh, in a democratic system over decades just was such a interesting and unique lens into thinking about American history that I just really enjoyed it um, uh, diving in with you. So anyway, um, enough of that. Let's jump in back to his youth, which was um, kind of horrific. Um, what uh, what let's 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 do a little childhood trauma tour, uh, Beverly. What I'm. Uh, um, what, why, was, why was life so rough for uh, Hoover as a youth? Well, he was a child of Washington, D.C., and so a lot of this book is about Washington, about Washington as a city, as a city with its own uh, particular culture and politics. So he was born there in 1895, and the way that he often described his childhood was as this kind of idyllic time 
a time of innocence, a time when everything was very clear and people were very moral and upstanding, right? Often the ways that um, people describe their childhoods in retrospect. But as I began to do some research on his family, I found a whole series of uh, pretty deep traumas, as you say, um, that he hadn't talked about. I don't know if that was a deliberate covering up per se. Hoover was certainly not above that. Um, but that I concluded really must have shaped him as a child. So even before his birth, um, the one of his grandfathers committed suicide in a pretty dramatic way uh, in the Anacostia River. He basically tied himself to a stake and drowned there um, in the midst of a major financial crisis. This made headlines across the city. Uh, during his own childhood, his aunt was murdered. Um, in a murder-suicide, this is his mother's brother's wife, um, that again made headlines across the city, and then probably the most immediate piece, um, and one that I was able to explore a little bit, but that the sources are pretty thin on, was his own father's mental illness um, and depression. And his father ultimately basically died of depression when Hoover was a young man. Yeah, so um, the she parallels are strained, um, but interesting to sort of contemplate in that, of course, she, you know, grew up in the Cultural Revolution and had his had, you know, his whole universe of, 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 of family trauma. But like Hoover kind of came out on the other side of that being really one who bought into like their the system and the sort of order and structure that, um, you know, in she's case, the party in Hoover's case kind of like American bureaucracy could give to help them make sense of their lives and, and, and um, uh, you know, meaning. Yeah, Hoover was very ambitious as a young man, and he seems to have responded to a lot of these circumstances coming from, well, you know, a kind of struggling middle class family. His father had a government job, but not a great one. Um, and so Hoover went through the public school system. He then stayed in Washington, went to George Washington University at night while he worked by day in the Library of Congress. But throughout all of it, you can see a really kind of intensive energy, um, a real ambition. You know, he was valedictorian and head of the debate team and, and all of these uh, themes from early in his life. And he just took a lot of that energy and a lot of that skill and, as you say, applied it to the art of bureaucracy and had this incredibly swift rise through the Justice Department. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, sort of before before we get to that job, I mean, his his sort of like being really into fraternities and like the organization of like high school drill which, um, you know, people were doing like fun, cool things in the in the teens and 20s. Um, uh, uh, that was not him. Like he the, the way he threw himself into um, the Library of Congress, um, sort of catalog uh, cataloging um, various, uh, I guess, like books and whatnot in the sort of like new Dewey Decimal System, which was like the coolest thing in information technology um, in the early 20th century. Um, you have this uh, great line of uh, when he was applying to get a permanent position in the uh, in the Justice Department after World War One, that um, his sort of like recommendations letters said say that he works hard and industriously, putting a lot of overtime work, and is really diligent. Diligent. No one says he's brilliant, um, but it was um, uh, it was sort of this like you know deep drive and kind of like uh, almost like affinity 
for or like psychological need to you know put all these things in boxes and do organizing um that ended up really uh, enabling uh, enabling him to distinguish himself from his peers yeah he was always drawn even as a young man to institutions that had a couple of things going for them one that they tended to be pretty hierarchical right the cadet corps of his high school um his fraternity in some sense two that they were homosocial so he really liked men's organizations. Now, that wasn't so unusual in the early 20th century, but um, he was in the cadet corps and the fraternity and the Masonic order and all of these other institutions where men gathered together um, to the exclusion of women. And then he really liked rules and systems. Um, so that was, I think, key at the Library of Congress, where, as you say, he really learned to kind of order information in this way that was relatively new for um, uh, for information technology at the time. And then a lot of that ethos of wanting very clear rules and hierarchies, um, he really carries into uh, into what he does at the Bureau. Yeah. So so some of these things we'll pick up on sort of like IT and, and, and rules and organization. Um, but I want to come back to sort I want to like paint a portrait of what the federal government could and couldn't do in this sort of pre-World War One and post in, you know, just like first half of the 20th century. So, um, you know, uh, folks were shocked at how limited it was. Um, Beverly, can you give us a bit of a portrait of, um, you know, capacities that you may have that, you know, us sitting here in 2023 may have expect um, bureaucrats in Washington to be able to do that, frankly, was like not possible given the, you know, uh, funding systems, you know, quality of person uh, in these sorts of organizations at the time? Yeah, so Washington was kind of a backwater. It was a second-rate city, and that was partly because the federal government didn't have anything like uh, the capacity that we think of today. So the federal government was very involved in a few things. One was the post office, which was probably the place that most Americans <laughs> encountered the federal government in the most serious way. Uh of course, you've got a small army who is active around the world and uh, on the North American continent in various ways. And you have a scattershot uh, series of other duties and abilities and capacities at the federal level. Uh, but it's really a grab bag. There's very little of the kind of social welfare apparatus that we think of today. And in Hoover's case, there's very little of either the law enforcement or intelligence apparatus. I mean, there basically is no federal intelligence system prior to World War I. And so Hoover is just there on the ground floor as the security states being invented, as the intelligence systems being invented, and really as federal power uh, is going to explode over the course of the 20th century. And that was some of the happenstance of his life, right? One of these contingent moments is that he, you know, happened to be born and then to graduate into a world where all of this is being um, reinvented. And he's part of that invention process. Um, great. So, OK, World War II, World War One passes and all of a sudden America decides it needs to spy on citizens. How does that happen and what role does Hoover play in it? Hoover happened to graduate from law school in the spring of 1917. So for history buffs out there, uh, spring of 1917 means that the United States is entering World War I. Uh, Hoover doesn't go into the military. Instead, he goes straight into the Justice Department. 
uh, which has this kind of explosion of new things that it needs to do during the war. It is supposed to be enforcing a whole set of kind of draconian new speech laws that have been created to prevent people from criticizing the war or advocating revolution or labor resistance or draft dodging. Um, it's supposed to be enforcing draft dodgers um, and uh, in enforcing the draft in some way. And then Hoover's actually his first duty in the Justice Department is with German internment, which is something that we tend to forget about. Uh, but there were many thousands of uh, German citizens who were interned in various ways um, during the First World War. So that was his that was his big experiment as he entered during the war, German internment and registration. He turned out to be so good at it that when the war came to an end, the Justice Department is thinking about what its peacetime apparatus is going to look like. Um, they decide to create a new little division called the Radical Division, which is supposed to be its first peacetime effort at conducting surveillance of political radicals in the United States, mainly anarchists and communists and black activists. Um, and they put Hoover in charge of this at the age of 24. Um, so he's rising fast already, and he's shaping all of these ideas about communism, anti-communism, you know, the Bolshevik revolution has just happened. And Hoover is there on the ground floor um, as the new American Communist parties come into being. Interesting echoes uh, from, I guess, Cold War, sort of like anti-xenophobic sentiment um, throughout uh, American history, you know, when uh, when World War II started, you had no more uh, sort of playing of Wagner and Beethoven. People stopped eating sauerkraut and hamburgers. And, you know, this goes all the way to mob violence, uh, which is, you know, kind of, again, like difficult to, to comprehend. I mean, you, when you think of sort of violence in America um, in that era, you, you think more of sort of race riots, um, but the idea that th that could be directed at, um, at at Germans in the context of World War One is was was very sort of striking to me. Um, what did labor activism? I mean, this is we're going to do your first your, your other book in in maybe two minutes. But like, what was so scary for the American establishment about all these groups that uh, Hoover was supposed to keep tabs on? Yeah, it could be hard to imagine for us today because we kind of know how the story plays out. But in 1917, 18, 19, there are lots of people in the United States who are really worried about a revolution, um, about a left wing revolution, something like the Bolshevik revolution that had just happened in Russia. And of course, you're seeing revolutionary ideas and movements sort of sweep across Europe during and after the war. And there's lots of labor unrest in the United States. There are a series of really dramatic terrorist bombings aimed at government officials and major capitalists. Um, and there is this kind of profusion of new radical groups coming into being, too. So all of that combined um, produces what I think we have to understand as, on the one hand, overblown, but also genuine concern um, that the United States was going to kind of erupt in some uh, big wave of, of social violence and potentially uh, attempts to overthrow the government. And uh, Hoover comes in at the age of 24 as one of the officials in charge of, of stopping that. Yeah. I mean, if you thought that balloons are scary, just imagine bombs going off like once a month, um, sort of across the entire U.S., 
Okay, so um, labor in particular, how can we sort of see the origins of um, COINTEL Pro in uh, what uh, the Justice Department ended up doing for um, to try to undermine these groups? Hoover's first big effort, I mean, the first place that he really made kind of a dramatic impact on the American political scene was as head of the radical division at the age of 24, when the attorney general, a guy named A. Mitchell Palmer, kind of turns to Hoover to help organize a series of deportation raids that are going to be aimed at uh, first anarchists and then communists. And the federal government basically uh, goes in, uh, raids people who are having political meetings, um, arrests them all, the first round of raids, which is aimed at anarchists, is wildly popular and successful. And Hoover very dramatically uh, gets an old warship that they nickname the Soviet Ark. And they take these, you know, 200 some anarchists and say, we're sending them back where they belong to Bolshevik Russia. And in fact, they load them all on this ship. And this includes some famous people like Emma Goldman, who was the most famous anarchist uh, in the United States, if not the world at the time. Um, and they send them off to uh, to revolutionary Russia, um, and they are, in fact, permanently deported. Uh, in January 1920, then, there's a second round of raids aimed at the communist parties, and these become much more controversial. Um, they're a larger scale. Um, and so this produces a big sort of civil liberties backlash. And so if we look back on the Palmer raids, what does Hoover learn from that episode? I think, um, first of all, you can see his kind of anti-communist ideas in very rapid formation. He writes some of the first briefs on communism and the Communist Party ever produced in the federal government. On the other hand, you see him encountering criticisms and, in fact, particular people and organizations like the ACLU, which is just getting started. Uh, who are going to be big critics and people that he has to contend with throughout his lifetime. Uh, and then the third thing that I think he really concludes from all of that is that, you know, the problem with the Palmer raids wasn't that they were wrong or that they violated civil liberties. It was that it was done too publicly, <laughs> that everyone yeah. could kind of see what was going on. And you had all these pictures of federal agents, you know, kind of banging people over the head and such. And so that from now on, it would have to be done uh, much more quietly. Um, this kind of surveillance would kind of come in-house. And that is really his philosophy for a lot of the time that he's director. So coming to, to sort of his focus or I mean, lifeline focus really on communism, I guess, you know, it hits a lot of sort of psychological neuralgic points as well as being a real career accelerant for him. Yeah, if you're in charge of the radical division, of course you want all of America freaking out about radicals, particularly the scary foreign ones, um, if you want to sort of, you know, expand your power and get more, um, you know, a bigger budget and higher profile and more prestige or whatever. Um, can you sort of kind of disentangle the uh, sort of psychological as well as bureaucratic factors uh, that ended up leading him to focus on this, um, you know, for almost 50 years? Right. Well, they are very hard to disentangle. And I think, you know, one of the things that's great about Hoover as a biographical subject, and then also one of the things that's challenging is that he himself was not terribly reflective um, about, uh, you know, where he ended and the Bureau began or where his ideas ended and, uh, you know, the rest of the country 
um, began. And so he always would have seen kind of a deep fusion between, you know, what he felt was right and what served him and what served the Bureau and what served the country and what served the cause of anti-communism. For Hoover, these were all identical. They were all the same thing. And I think what's actually really interesting about him as an anti-communist and as someone who reform that outlook in this early period when revolution and violence and those kinds of conflicts are so central to these questions um, is that he doesn't come to see communism as just, you know, sort of a national security question. So he goes on to deal with Soviet espionage and, you know, the Cold War, these kind of classic national security situations, infiltration of the government. Uh, but he, throughout his life, really sees this as a grand existential struggle that is cultural and social as well as political and security oriented has to do with race and religion and you know he targets a lot of people who are progressives or liberals as being kind of dupes of the communists um and so he just sorts his world into kind of good guys and bad guys and uh, and that's pretty consistent for for most of his career yeah, I mean, I think you, we start to see some more she echoes here, um, particularly with the idea that like there is no sort of like uh, reasonable dissent, and that anyone who is disagreeing with me is like an is like actually fundamentally being subversive and like an enemy of you know the the bureau or the party or the American you know way of life as the case may be. Yeah, I think you know Hoover would over the course of his career often make gestures toward the need to respect dissent uh, toward, you know, democracy as being really essential to the American way of life, toward, you know, the need for constitutional limits and constraints on the FBI. And in fact, a lot of people, you know, applauded and supported him, strangely enough, from our perspective, as, you know, a kind of civil libertarian within the government or someone who could have been a lot worse. And yet temperamentally and in many ways, you know, politically and ideologically, um, he was almost totally intolerant of dissent. So that was within the bureau itself as he built it. Uh, that was you know, any criticism of him or the bureau that occurred in the press, in the public at large. He would immediately kind of retaliate. He had a very thin skin about all of that. And he was always entirely convinced of his own righteousness, the righteousness of his vision of the world, the righteousness of the cause that he was serving, and people who couldn't get on board, he really did understand as enemies and subversives. And of course, he had an apparatus, uh, the FBI, that he had pretty strong control over and uh, was there to, to really enforce his vision of, of what America should be like and how Americans ought to think and act. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to stay on this sort of democracy, like actually thinking democracy is worthwhile theme for a little bit. I've been reading up on George Kennan recently, and it's been striking to me just like how um, both, uh, uh, you know, how, how Kennan in particular just like thought democracy was kind of like annoying and like deeply unhelpful to furthering state interests. Um, and, and Hoover, you know, sometimes he's like, yeah, like, I don't want to do this. It's too, it's too much. But like the answer that he seemed to keep always coming to is like, give me, give me and the state and the national security state more power and we'll take care of this. Like citizens 
do not be alarmed. Just like, let us do our thing and like all your problems will be solved. And, and sort of, you know, any sort of like pushback from the people was always a negative. I'm curious, you know, any reflections on that or just more generally in the kind of like 20th century milieu, like how many people actually thought democracy was good um, um, or or like an actual asset um, in the, um, uh, you know, or a true asset, not like, you know, something we have to sort of put on and over to a side when, you know, competing in World War One, World War Two, and then in the, in the Cold War. It's a big question. Yeah. Well, one of the things that interested me in, in writing about Hoover was actually to turn our lens away from, you know, the way that we usually narrate the 20th century or often do in American politics, which is elections, political parties, candidates, presidents, legislation, um, and to really look at the part of the state where most governance happens and where, in fact, you know, democratic accountability was not very strong or powerful for a lot of the 20th century. And so, you know, Hoover is interesting in his own right. He's interesting, I think, as a representative of uh, the security state, and then more broadly, the administrative state, which goes through such a dramatic expansion in the 20th century. Uh, so that piece is really there and I think is is important to think about. Um, and then you have the question of how, in fact, you know, he took these tools of power and, and what he did with them. To me, the really interesting kind of political puzzle of Hoover is that I think he was a real believer, as you say, in uh, in professionalism, in expertise, you know, in leaving it to the professionals, right? um, in science, in federal power, um, in all of these ideas that we tend to describe as being really essential to progressives or to liberals in building, you know, the kind of mid-century liberal state. And yet at the same time, he was this deep ideological conservative on race, on communism, on religion, on law and order. And he sort of put those two pieces together to build, you know, this kind of conservative bastion within the liberal state. And it's a it's a kind of interesting tension. I think it was less unusual during his lifetime than it is now when that combination of things is almost impossible to imagine. So, yeah, let's stick with the culture question. Like, what was the vision of, um, you know, the, the the system and the people that inhabited the system he was trying to create? Um, and how did he, you know, you know, realize that uh, through sort of hiring and organizational practices over the years? Well, when he became director in 1924, so he was just 29 years old. And he was brought in, though it's weird for us to think about it, he was brought in as a reformer. And his main charges were, one, to kind of uh, get the FBI out of the sort of objectionable political surveillance practices and civil liberties violations that it had been engaged in. Now, of course, he had been deeply involved in that work, but you know, he was young. He was fresh. He was making new promises. And then the other was to kind of clean up its corruption and patronage problems. And he spent most of his first decade as director really just focused on kind of perfecting the bureaucracy. So his first initiative was to kind of revamp 
who an agent was. He only wanted college-educated men. He wanted lawyers and accountants. He wanted to hire people who were a lot like him, which meant they probably went to George Washington University or joined his fraternity or some similar fraternity. Um, they were white men of a certain age with a certain outlook on the world that were basically extensions of Hoover. And then he spent a lot of time making things like new uh, new rules and new manuals and hiring standards uh, and putting in place a lot of the things that we still have as the kind of FBI's you know, expert practices right now. This is when he took over counting crime statistics. So when you hear the FBI's crime statistics today, that comes from early Hoover. Uh, he established the FBI lab. He established its training facilities for police, etc. All of these were kind of in the vision of making the FBI this elite, highly professionalized, very conservative core of you know, white men who would go on to be known as as G-men or, or government men when they became sort of more famous in, in the mid-1930s. Yeah. And I think it's an interesting point you make. And sort of when you, you have a few pages where you sort of describe what police work like before the FBI, and it was it was corrupt. It was violent. There was, you know, forced confessions. And, um, you know, it was really just like a, a sort of oh, for, for a lot of sort of street level crime, it was like an extension of the sort of criminal universe. Um, so the idea that he wants to kind of professionalize and uh, sort of raise the status of um, of of fighting crime makes a ton of sense, um, you know, when it leads to you not only not, you know, only hiring like white frat brothers. And it's not just only white frat brothers. It's like white frat brothers who like played sports and like who has like a certain jawline and like their lips aren't too big and stuff. I mean, you really like end up getting this very narrow vision of what a you know, what kind of civil servant you wanted. And it's kind of funny in the in the in the subsequent decades where he's like, oh, man, like all of my people are fighting World War Two. I guess I got to like bring in like a handful of of blocks. And then in the in the 60s and 70s, at one point you have a story where someone got fired because like he had a girl over for a night and this was like 1965. And he's like, what? And, and this guy's like, Sue's Hoover. It's just like, what planet are you on? Like we <laughs> this is the 1960s. I can't believe I'm losing my job over this. Um, uh, that uh, sort of vision of of sort of order and, and and functioning that he takes from his you know pre World War One years um, and and you know pastes on to the next 50 years of running this organization was a really interesting uh, thread that you pulled out. Yeah, and FBI employment really was a kind of totalizing experience. So you got moved around a lot. Uh, somewhat randomly. Uh, Hoover had uh, very high expectations for the overtime that you were going to put in. He had high expectations for uh, how you were going to go to church and where you were going to go to church and who you were going to date and what your family life was going to be like. Um, and maybe most importantly, he made a very big point over the course of his whole career of keeping his agents out of the civil service so that he himself had almost total control over their hiring and firing and selection. If they had been in the civil service, he would have had you know a pool of candidates who would not all have been these kind of nice white frat boys that he wanted. Um, but because he kept them out of the civil service, he was able to create this institution with an incredibly powerful internal culture. You know, and there's a reason that 
most Americans today still, if you say FBI agent, they picture something very particular, right? They picture <laughs> uh, a tall white guy in a suit. And uh, and that was that was Hoover's product. Yeah. Um, you know, CCP parallels. Uh, I don't know if they abound, but it's 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 sort of it's almost like a, a sort of like, a, you know, a Leninist core maybe of um, uh, of sort of like the, the change that Hoover wanted to see in America. Um, uh, so, you know, speaking of the, the, the person on top, like the leadership style. Um, I think was also was also really interesting to watch sort of like how it, he really was able to turn this into his, um, you know, his domain. He was and he did it, uh, you know, amazingly over this vast period of time when you would think there'd be some turnover in an appointed position like this. But he served under eight different presidents, four of whom were Democrats, four of whom were Republicans. Um, and he managed to kind of achieve something like bureaucratic autonomy within the government such that um, he had his fiefdom that very few other people um, could 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 influence or even really penetrate. Now, he definitely understood himself to be, you know, a, a servant of the attorney general to some degree, but certainly of the of the president. And so, um, you know, he was not someone who uh, refused to uh, follow the political priorities of those above him, though at strategic moments he did often resist or people learned not to ask him to do things they thought he wasn't going to do. Um, but within the state itself, he just had, uh, you know, by any measure, uh, a really extraordinary amount of autonomy and control over what started out as a few hundred agents. But uh, by the time he uh, hit his late career was many, many thousands. So um, I'll stop with the she stuff for a second and bring in a better parallel, um, which is Robert Moses, um, who also, you know, came up in this sort of progressive era. He was this like young hotshot reformer um, and then ends up sort of becoming an unelected power center for for decades. Uh, curious for those parallels as well as like, you know, I guess this is the type of book when you write it about the 20th century where you also have Robert Caro over your shoulder. Let's do, let's do Robert Moses first as a person. What, what, what interesting dynamics did you see between them? Did they ever meet each other? They must have, right? They might have. I never found that moment, but uh, Hoover spent a lot of time in New York um, and was involved in lots of the institutions, you know, the kind of press associations and clubs and he used to hang out at the Waldorf all the time. So surely they they came across each other, though they weren't especially close. Um, and I think, you know, to me, yes, it's it's not the first time I've heard of that book, The Power Broker. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think one of the things that Hoover and Moses shared, as you said, was a kind of generational story, right? That they both, in some ways, I think, were kind of unique to their moment. Uh, in the sense that they came along, they were ambitious young bureaucrats uh, who gained their skills in you know the teens and the twenties, uh, just before the moment that really government power and ambition was going to explode, and it meant that they were then in the right place at the right time to you know kind of be part of that expansion. It also that accident of timing meant that there weren't a lot of controls at that point, right? So 
early on, the Bureau of Investigation, nobody thinks when Hoover becomes head of the Bureau in, uh, in 1924 at the age of 29, no one foresees that you're going to have this right, this colossus uh, that's going to be you know the center of federal law enforcement and domestic intelligence. It's just this little group of investigators that do stuff for the Justice Department, and you know. So I think the same thing is is true of Moses when he kind of comes into those positions. You know, there's not a lot of sense of how much power is actually concentrated in those positions. And there aren't a lot of mechanisms of accountability. Those are going to come later uh, for both of them toward the end of their careers and then really after their after their deaths, when everyone kind of reckons with uh, what they've built. So, all right. So let's come to Robert Caro and legacy, uh, you know, a little later in the interview. But um, another interesting parallel between them is just like, man, these guys know how to play the game. Um, so uh, sort of we're moving up into time at this point. We're we're into World War two and um uh he helps harry hopkins spy on his wife i mean that, that just must be like the the tip of the iceberg of crazy of just like hoover knowing how to sort of work the angles and 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 keep his um uh, keep his masters happy right i think the popular image of hoover is that he both got and then maintained his power by kind of strong arming everyone, right? He has the secret files. He's intimidating people. Um, and he certainly did plenty of that, particularly later on when he really was in this in this incredibly powerful position. But one of the things that I tried to do in the book was to look at all the other sources and techniques of power um, that he was able to deploy. And as you say, on the one hand, he had these very consistent ideas, say, about communism or about law and order that he maintains for his whole career. On the other hand, he is incredibly flexible um, in responding to crisis, in responding to the needs and priorities of powerful men above him, and in doing favors for them, right? Uh, one of the reasons that he stays in power for so long is not just that, you know, presidents were afraid of him, and there's some truth to that, and it's, I think, somewhat exaggerated, but because he was so useful to them. Uh, and you yeah. see that beginning to really develop in, in the Roosevelt years. You know, same thing with Congress. He's really good at developing his relations with Congress. He's good at developing his relations with the press, with his own popular constituency. You know, he's got this vast array of, of tools that he works with um, to, to kind of build a base for himself yeah so you know kind of like a, a few angles of that which were which were fascinating just like you know all these ex-agents end up being congressional staffers and then he kind of like gives them like little tidbits to make their bosses look smart so that the next time appropriations comes around like he gets the plus up he wants um but the really interesting thing um and that you know one of the most striking things of this book is his public opinion ratings for decades and decades were like 80%, 90% approval ratings. Um, can you talk a little bit about the sort of public um, outreach efforts and, you know, image shaping of both Hoover and the FBI more generally that allowed, uh, you know, that kind of gave him this, um, uh, uh, you know, this, uh, I guess, uh, immortality mortality field um you know this like you know this armor of uh being more popular than the more powerful people 
uh, uh, you know, ostensibly above him in the um, uh, in the Washington power rankings. Yeah, in a lot of ways, I think that's probably the most surprising part of the book was not, you know, my deep dives into the secret FBI archives, but uh, was this very public fact, which is that though we think of Hoover as one of the great villains of the 20th century, you know, the person that nobody likes today, uh, more or less, for most of his career, he was incredibly popular and he had high approval ratings as you say, in the 70s, 80s, 90 percentiles, uh, especially in the 1940s and 1950s. Uh, he lasts through Democratic and Republican administrations. He has widespread support in Congress. And uh, there are a number of reasons for this, but one of them is that he turns out to be incredibly skilled at public relations and, in fact, devotes a whole part of the FBI uh, to public relations outreach of a wide array of sorts. So some of it is just articles in the press and managing the press. Some of it is outreach to Hollywood, which to his uh, everlasting benefit decides in the 1930s under the film codes that they are only going to make crime movies if the cops win. And so uh, that makes Hoover's G-Men these kind of great heroic figures uh, and that code lasts for most of his time there. So he were, benefits from that. Were there were there are there pre-code movies about corrupt cops? There are. Yeah. So okay. so starting in the 20s, when talkies came in, uh, a lot of those early films were um, were pretty dark, dystopian crime movies, extremely violent, you know, romanticized criminals. There's a lot of, you know, drugs and sex and drinking and all of these things that um, in the 30s, uh, Hollywood decided they were going to ban from films. And so that's why we get, you know, the two twin beds, uh, you know, the married couples yeah. who don't even sleep in the same place. Um, not because that's what that's not how people really behaved. It's just what the codes dictated. And the same thing held true for, you know, the police always getting their man. Yeah, I mean the first uh the first Scarface is the one that comes to mind. But um yeah, I mean okay, we're sorry guys, we're going to do more China parallels like yeah, like just being able to sort of dominate the information space and like control how people think of you and like he has such a powerful lever over these folks because he can get them blacklisted and ruin their careers. So of course no one's going to no one in Hollywood is going to want to kind of like cross um, uh, cross Hoover. And it takes until, you know, the late 60s and 70s for um, the um, for sort of that that um, that armor to start to to start to get chipped away by by cultural trends um, and sort of skepticism in government, which is much broader than, um, you know, anything that that Hoover really had power over. I do. I am curious, like, or maybe I'll stop there if you want to. Or no, let's, we'll get to that later. Um, uh, I do think, um, you know, Robert Moses, right? He's had a bit of a revisionist history push over the past few years, uh, particularly as it's been, um, you know, more and more difficult to build anything in America, and 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 sort of, you know, you're seeing high speed rail not happen, and and the Second Avenue subway costs costs, you know, fifty billion dollars or whatever it is. Um, you know, I wonder, Beverly, you know, to what extent you think that in a in a sort of world of heightened U.S.-China relations and Cold War 2.0. Um, you may have, uh, you know, the next the next Hoover biography may slightly take a slightly more sympathetic 
um, uh, view um, to what um, uh, you know consensus and and what you ended up doing in your book. Yeah, it's been interesting to uh, to to see the reaction. So, I think this is a fair account of Hoover, um, and actually is probably uh, more generous toward him in lots and lots of ways than most other biographies have been. But it is not an especially sympathetic biography, yeah. and I am certainly not, uh, you know, suggesting that J. Edgar Hoover is is the model of the future. But I would say, you know, a couple of things have been interesting along these lines. Um, one has been just the very recent partisan shift on, you know, whether people like the FBI or not. Uh, so the Republicans right now are the ones investigating the FBI, hostile to the FBI. Republicans are much more critical of the FBI in public opinion polls. Um, and that's an almost total reversal um, from the moment of Hoover's death, uh, in which the, the politics, uh, of course, looked very different. The one place that I would say I have seen, you know, some interest in kind of thinking about Hoover as a model is precisely you know, in the amount of autonomy that he was able to have, which did allow him to kind of resist uh, untoward requests sometimes from presidents and from others, uh, certainly made him unfireable. It's right? so... Uh, you know, James Comey was fireable um, in a way that J. Edgar Hoover was not. And, you know, I think there was a way in which his interest in the FBI as an institution and the concentration of power he had uh, did insulate it from politics that he wanted uh, to insulate it from. And then he was also pretty good at negotiating, you know, when the FBI is being drawn into highly politicized investigations the Kennedy assassination, uh, a variety of other um, big, high-profile, highly controversial, highly political investigations. There are lots of things to criticize about what, what he did there, but he, he did have ways of kind of managing the political volatility of those moments um, in a way that, uh, you know, I, I, I think maybe recent FBI directors might have some admiration for because it's, it's actually a hard thing to do. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing that really struck me um, was that particularly in the 40s and 50s, like he wasn't seeing ghosts like there was real there were lots of spies everywhere. And um, the sort of, you know, appeal of of the Soviet idea in in the sort of late 30s, 40s and, and, and 50s was um, something that actually created a lot of problems for the U.S. government trying to keep hold of state secrets. So, um, you know, that. I think is something that just, you know, it wasn't out from the archives, uh, you know, for the past 15 or uh, until until relatively recently. And and I think, um, uh, you know, you make a pretty compelling case in the book that, in fact, you know, he held on to this like a little too long. And um, especially, you know, when he takes this like fear of communism and like puts it on uh, Martin Luther King and just like the, the civil rights movements had more generally, it was like really unfair and ended up uh, leading to some really one of some of the most uh, the darkest chapters in, in, in modern American history. But um, uh, that, that also seems like an interesting piece of revision, like just how worried America should have been about communism and communist subversion in his early years as a in the FBI. Yeah, one of the reasons that I wanted to write a new Hoover biography was that most of the early biographies had come out in the in the late 80s and early 90s and they're they're good books for the most part, 
but they didn't get to take advantage of the post-Cold War moment and all of the revelations that have come out about Soviet espionage, about the nature of the Communist Party in the United States. And so I thought it was going to be really interesting, and it was, to try to reinterpret Hoover through the lens of what we now know. And there are, you know, a number of records and of kind of secret operations that have come out that have shown, actually, yes, there was quite a lot of speech much going on in the United States, uh, that a lot of the people who were these kind of high-profile, controversial figures, um, the FBI had pretty good reason uh, to think that they were, in fact, guilty, uh, figures like Julius Rosenberg um, and others. And then some really interesting cases where, in fact, the FBI knew, particularly through the Venona Project, which was this secret a Cold War decryption project in which they had actual Soviet intelligence cables, uh, were able to decrypt them in, in pretty limited ways, but in significant ways, um, and in which they actually found a whole bunch of people um, who were clearly involved in espionage, who they then couldn't prosecute because they wanted to hold on to a secret like Venona. They wanted to keep the program going. They didn't want to let everyone uh, know what they knew. And so on the one hand, you get these prosecutions. On the other hand, they're actually a bunch of people um, who they were pretty sure about, who they just kind of let go off into the world. And I think the question, as you well, as you were saying, you know, the question then is, if we accept that, you know, X number of people were in fact involved in Soviet espionage, you know, what's the relationship between that? And, you know, this vast kind of cultural phenomenon, political phenomenon known as the as the Red Scare. And that's a really interesting set of questions. Yeah. I mean, it was it, this is a sort of another contemporary theme is like, yes, it's real. But like, how many lives are you going to ruin in the process? And, um, you know, how how bad are these like type like type one versus type two errors? Um, you know, you have this vision of, you know, why don't you talk a little bit about like you know, Hooverism versus McCarthyism and the and the sort of uh, tensions between how both of those um, people tried to address this in the early um, uh, early 50s. I argue in the book that, though, we tend to you know think of Joe McCarthy as kind of the the ultimate anti-communist figure. We talk about McCarthyism, that Hoover is really ultimately probably the more important figure. Um, so McCarthy you know, kind of came on the national scene in a big way in 1950. By 1954, he is being censured by the Senate um, and essentially forced out of American political life. And he dies of alcoholism in 1957. So he's big and showy, but he's not there for very long. And he doesn't do a lot of kind of lasting institution building. Uh, and Hoover, on the other hand, you know, is there doing anti-communist work uh, for decades before McCarthy, and especially in the 1940s. And his approach is really, you know, to use the bureaucracy of the FBI and all of the relationships that he's built um, to solidify this kind of anti-communist machine, right? So it's not only the FBI itself, which has these big um, surveillance and infiltration operations uh, aimed at a huge range of people inside the Communist Party and out, but uh, he's working with congressional committees. He has a whole 
secret program to keep governors and school educators and state and local officials informed with FBI information. He has a massive press initiative and has this huge press network, which is willing to kind of publish what he wants about this. He's publishing his own books. He's making speeches, right? I mean, he's really kind of institutionalizing all of this um, in ways that are going to last. And so, you know, McCarthy is run out of American politics and then dies. And Hoover's just there saying yeah. the same thing with this, you know, much more powerful apparatus um, as McCarthy fades from the scene. Yeah, I love this, uh, this, this little note you had about, you know, once the Army McCarthy hearings roll up, like, uh, have you no sense of decency, sir? Like the, the sort of AP US history version of that is like, okay, that's like when this peaked. But no, like the next month, there, uh, Hoover gets all these extra powers uh, by Congress to allow the FBI to do more of this, basically with the with the with the rationale being like, yeah, like communism is still scary, but like we're just going to have Hoover do it. And then, you know, that leads to thousands of like primary school teachers losing their jobs um, uh, because apparently, you know, you can't have a second grader be, um, uh, you know, have communism whispered to their ear um, because that'll be the downfall of American civilization. Right. We tend to think about Hoover and McCarthy as being, you know, more or less interchangeable. Uh, at the time, they were seen as these radically different kinds of figures. And in fact, both the Truman administration and then especially the Eisenhower administration, they kind of championed Hoover. They got behind him. They cheered him on and gave him lots of new power uh, and presented him as, you know, the responsible, state-based, rule-bound alternative to Joe McCarthy, who was the liar and the demagogue and all of this. Um, now, of course, we know the ways in which that really wasn't entirely true of Hoover. But even now, you know, there's enough truth to it that it makes sense that 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 those folks would have rallied uh, behind Hoover as they were attempting to kind of cast out McCarthy. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier this idea, this like Hoover wrote a book and then he just made the entire world buy it. Um, another little sheep parallel. Um, but I do want to get to Operation Solo, which is maybe the, wild, the, the wildest story I didn't know about. FB, Hoover had an agent, you know, Hoover had an informant meet with Mal. Yeah, yeah that is an amazing, an amazing story. And anyone who is, you know, uh, likes to kind of nerd out in archives and weird historical documents, I highly recommend the Solo files. Uh, so Solo was one of the FBI's um, most treasured and most secret operations that began in the late 1950s and lasted through through the 70s. Um, and uh, there's a funny little Reagan story that goes along with this too. But um, in essence, there were two brothers uh, they had been in the Communist Party. They had grown a little disaffected from the Communist Party. And in the late 50s, uh, the FBI persuaded them both um, to re-enter the party. And then uh, when the Soviet Union uh, uh, went around searching for international couriers, someone to kind of better build up the relationship between the American Communist Party and the Soviet Union, uh, the FBI managed to maneuver these two informants into getting those jobs. So one brother was the international financial courier of money from the Soviet Union into the U.S. Communist Party. And the files are great. They're just marking every bill. They're keeping tabs. You know, they're not holding the money back. 
um, they're letting these millions of dollars kind of pass through uh, from the Soviets through the FBI, which notes them all and then passes them along to uh, the Communist Party. And then the other brother, a guy named Morris Childs, was the international representative of the Communist Party. And so he is sent around the world as the emissary of American communism. He goes to the Soviet Union several times, meets with big dignitaries there. He goes to China. Uh, he meets with Mao. He meets with other high government officials. He goes to Cuba and meets with Castro. I mean, he's just all over the world uh, meeting all of these folks and then coming back um, and, and telling the FBI what he has found. You know, for people who are interested in that history, I would say one of the most amazing things about those solo files, first of all, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of uh, sections, so thousands of pages, is that they would try to bring back also kind of, you know, primary material. So they would bring back tchotchkes, they would bring back, you know, programs, minutes of meetings. And so there's this whole kind of social history archive of global radicalism and communism that's just sitting there in these in these FBI files. But they kept this up through the 70s, uh, and then they were getting pretty old. And uh, when Reagan became president, he had a, a secret medal ceremony for them because the whole thing was still entirely secret, um, and you know lauded them as 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 great Americans who had served the cause. Wow! And no one's written a book about, them, right? There is a book um, called Operation Solo, but it was uh, before all of these files came out. So it was based on interviews with those guys, and, and it was a journalist who knew them pretty well. Um, so it gives you a broad overview, but there's lots more in the files now. All right. I'm going to we're, we're going to have to talk about this after the show. Um, uh, so. I mean, the other crazy thing is, like, they weren't at the Kremlin when JFK was killed. Um right. And, um, you know, the, the intelligence that I mean, th this must have been the most important thing they've done of, of um, you know, the, the, the data point that they provided was like, like Khrushchev was freaking out, worried that this was going to start World War Three, um, which I think is like as as good as evidence as as exists that, um, you know, JFK's murder wasn't a um, uh, wasn't a communist plot, though. I mean, who knows? Maybe it was two levels deep and they knew he was a spy and they just wanted to send it this way. But um, kind of unbelievable that um you know that accident of history ended up yeah that moment was really amazing and then the solo files actually in some ways first came to light because they were also uh the ones who um less through their international stuff than through just their involvement in the domestic communist party um had told the fbi uh, about a guy named stanley levison who was part of the kind of secret financial apparatus of the Communist Party and then went on to become a very close advisor to Martin Luther King. And so they are also a through line from, uh, you know, the FBI's communist investigations through to uh, their concerns about Levison that ultimately kind of became the vehicle for uh, for for the really terrible things they did to King. So um, decent transistron, COINTELPRO. What is it? Where did the playbook and uh, sort of where did the motivation and playbook come from? COINTELPRO is uh, sort of an amazing story. I think it's a, one of the most famous and notorious of, of Hoover's programs. And people tend to think about it as being associated with the 60s, with surveillance of King, disruption of the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement, the Black Panthers, 
Um, and all of that is true. Those were those were pretty deep uh, COINTELPRO operations. But it started in the late 50s, actually, as a program aimed at the Communist Party and aimed at the Communist Party specifically in a moment where two things were going on. One, uh, Hoover was very worried that the rest of the American public, including the Supreme Court and the courts more generally, including Congress, were sort of going going lax on the communists, right? We're less interested. They were saying, okay, we think we've pretty much destroyed the Communist Party. No big deal. The, the U.S. domestic Communist Party. No, they, didn't, they didn't think they won the Cold War in 1957. They did not think <laughs> that. Uh, and the other thing that was happening was that Khrushchev had made, you know, the speech uh, denouncing some of Stalin's crimes, revealing them, affirming them. Um, and that had happened in 56 into 57. And so it was causing a lot of internal contest and conflict globally, you know, within communist um, movements and parties and organizations. And then in particular in the United States, uh, there were lots of people who were uh, kind of uh, leaving the party in despair. And so Hoover thought, well, we've got to take advantage of that moment, right, to really crush them now that they're falling apart internally. But we can't do it in the ways that we might have done it before, court cases, investigations, right? And so he comes up with COINTELPRO. And COINTELPRO is basically a, a secret program of disruption aimed at trying to get uh, the party to collapse from within. So it is, you know, sending informers into meetings to make the meetings really long and boring and to ask dumb questions and to sow factionalism. Oh, some of the stuff that I really love from those files is just this basic, like you want to ruin a social movement, make the meetings take too long and, you know, make them really <laughs> boring and be like the guy who has, you know, really more of an, a, 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 a comment than a question. Right? So that's what they're telling their informers to do. Um, but they're doing more nefarious things too, you know, fake letters, um, all sorts of things uh, that are intended to sow, sow yeah. uh, uh, dissension. And they just export that to all sorts of other movements. Yeah. Um, a, a few thoughts on that. First, yeah, they, they did this with the communists. They did this with um, civil rights. They also did this with the Ku Klux Klan. Really interestingly, my favorite line, uh, perhaps in the whole book, was some FBI informant or, or some sort of like a person or informant was told, go sleep with as many wives as you can. Um, as, as that was kind of like the best strategy they could come up with, with like making all these like Ku Klux Klan people hate each other. Um, but it's not all fun and games. I mean, this is this is like like really like some of the worst parts of American history. Like you have um, uh, civil rights leaders, like almost like almost like being subject to contract killings um, by, um, uh, by, by, by local police um, sort of some like really weird complicity of like KKK informants being in the car when, when uh, activists are getting shot and killed. Um, and, uh, you know, just like ruining like the, the, the amount of sort of like collateral damage of lives being destroyed um, by uh, sort of fake rumors being um, uh, um, being spread with a um, uh, with the sort of like power, um, if not necessarily FBI imprimatur, like the power that um, this sort of uh, these sorts of whisper campaigns could could end up doing to people was, you know, incredibly, um, incredibly 
disruptive. I mean, I one of one of the sort of reflections I have is like just the power of this playbook um and um how uh uh you know, I mean, I guess all of these organizations were kind of like long shots in their own right of like trying to create a communist revolution in America, um bringing civil rights legislation or like, you know, Ku Klux Klan like the South rises again, I mean, whatever. But um you know, how much credit do you want to give what the FBI did to um, to sort of reshaping the um, you know ultimate destiny of the uh, of the targets that they put on the COINTELPRO list? One of the things that really uh, fascinated me from beginning to end with this project, and I think one of the you know things that makes Hoover as a biographical subject much more than the story of a single person. Um, is thinking about the ways in which, you know, the institution he built and then what he did with it um, through his agents, through his informants, uh, particularly in the 50s and 60s, really shaped in profound ways, you know, every social movement in the United States, um, you know, from labor and the Communist Party uh, through to uh, civil rights to the anti-war movement, the student left, and to some degree, groups on the right as well, as you say, who were part of COINTELPRO, Ku Klux Klan, white supremacist organizations, you know. Uh, and to sort of get back to the question that we were talking about earlier, which was, you know, democracy and kind of how, how Hoover fits into a history of democracy, you know, I think he understood himself to be sort of policing the limits of legitimacy in the United States. And he thought that he could be the judge of that, you know, whose actions or tactics or ideas, you know, deserve to be respected and to be left alone and whose ideas and tactics and movements uh, are dangerous and need to be, you know, destroyed or tamped down or contained or watched. Um, and the fact that one man you know, who was often reflecting broader ideas, but nonetheless, one man was in a position to make those kinds of uh, decisions, I think, is is one of the most alarming pieces of Hoover's story. Um, and I do think that uh, particularly the movements of the left would have looked very different um, if Hoover's uh, informants and agents and uh, ideology had not been yeah. uh, shaping shaping their world. Some of the worst stuff in in the FBI files is to look at the real glee with which um, they greet news that, you know, so-and-so has decided that their life's work within the party has been, you know, a disaster and they've, you know, collapsed or, you know, this yeah. black man being, you know, hounded by police wherever he goes and the FBI has turned the police on him once again for his activism, you know, and I, I recount a scene where uh, he just kind of breaks down, collapses on the floor, cries when they when they come to get him yet again. And the agents report this as a, as a great counterintelligence victory. You know, it's pretty, pretty dark stuff. Yeah, I mean, and, and it's not just I mean, it's not just black men, right? Like Jean Seberg, the actress who led um, uh, in Breathless, right? Like her life was ruined. I mean, it was it was really we're taking all comers um sort of white or um uh, white or black men or men or uh, man or woman who are not in line with uh what Hoover wants America to look like um and the blast radius was really enormous for um uh, 
uh, for what the FBI ended up getting up to in this era. Um, oh my God, I have so much I want to ask you. Um, okay, the sort of COINTELPRO and the CIA. Um, there was another organization uh, in the twentieth in, in the twentieth century uh, during the Cold War that tried to sort of like ruin um, uh, uh, ruin sort of organizations. Um, you you tell the story of a kind of like contentious relationship between the FBI and CIA with Hoover initially kind of like wanting to have the international espionage part of it. And then um, uh, when it was clear that he sort of lost that um, bureaucratic battle um, in the wake of the um, uh, of the creation of the national security state uh, after World War II, um, sort of backed away from it. But I'm curious if you in the archives saw any sort of like cross-pollination or learning between what happened in COINTELPRO and the sort of, um, uh, you know, international subversion that the CIA ended up getting up to. Yeah, uh, the FBI and the CIA were, for the most part, um, rivals rather than cooperators during uh, the 40s and 50s, especially, uh, you know, as you said, uh, Hoover had had ambitions uh, to kind of expand his footprint globally. Harry Truman rebuffs him, creates the CIA instead. And from that point on, you have um, both, I think, a real cultural difference uh, between the two organizations and then you know, a set of kind of personal and institutional rivalries. Um, it is true that the early CIA has a lot of former FBI agents who kind of flip sides and, and go with the CIA. Uh, Hoover is pretty upset about that early on, but um, <laughs> they bring in a lot of techniques that they learned at the FBI. Um, you know, William Harvey, who's a sort of famous uh, CIA uh, official and operative in the in the 40s and 50s. Um, he got his training at the FBI. He kind of learned what he knew about communism and how to combat it at the FBI and then kind of decamps uh, to the CIA and takes those skills with him. So I think you see personnel transfer. Um, and of course, there's some back and forth. You know, there's always some some poor soul who is the liaison between <laughs> the FBI and the CIA. Um, that's a pretty hard job. There was a guy named uh, Samuel Papich uh, who uh, eventually stayed in that job for a while. And I think he was, you know, tried to be a point of of transfer of information, both both good and bad. Um, but on COINTELPRO itself, um, I didn't see a lot of kind of direct transfer in that way. Um, although the FBI's file on the CIA, which anyone can FOIA and look at, is one of the funniest files that I've ever seen because it is so heavily redacted still, even when you're talking about the 40s and 50s. So you just have many documents that start with, you know, sir, as requested, I went and met with so-and-so and we had a very interesting conversation. And then the whole rest of the document is just blacked out. <laughs> um, so, you know, there may be more of all of that going on than uh, one can really access. So um, a few roads we're not going to travel down, but I just wanted to mention um, this idea of like the Birch Society and like QAnon 1.0 with Hoover as like, you know, the Donald Trump, like, you know, leader of the storm figure. Um, uh, you know, you have housewives writing to him being like, you're the only guy I can trust. Like, what should I do? What does this all mean? I thought was great. Um, you alluded to this earlier um, with this sort of like Comey Hillary thing. Um, but there were like, 
three or four different presidential elections where Hoover ended up being able to um, put his uh, finger on the scale a little bit um, with respect to, you know, Harry Dexter White um, uh, and another and a number of other sort of uh, sort of FBI adjacent um, or sort of law, law enforcement adjacent controversies that showed up in, you know, uh, September, October, November of an election year. Um, and he was able to, um, you know, he came out with a pretty good record, I think, of uh, ending up picking the um, uh, picking the right horse. But the craziest one I want to get into um, was LBJ and the Democratic Convention of 1964. What happened there? That, that is an amazing story. Um, so Hoover and Johnson were pretty good friends, um, though we don't necessarily think about them as uh, being the same sort of figure, but they have been neighbors on the same block of 30th place in Washington and uh, got to know each other pretty well in the 40s and 50s. Um, so when Johnson became president in 1963 and then began running for election in his own right uh, in 1964, uh, he really turned to Hoover, both to manage the Kennedy assassination and the Warren Commission um, and to manage a whole host of other uh, political problems, as Johnson saw them. Uh, in reward, he made uh, Hoover kind of FBI director for life. He exempted him uh, from the mandatory federal retirement age. But the most amazing of those stories is the Democratic Convention in 1964, um, when civil rights protesters are coming to Atlantic City, uh, particularly from Mississippi. This is a Mississippi Freedom Summer. They're coming as the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. And there's a big push underway, uh, not only to make the Democratic Party, you know, take up a civil rights agenda, which it is doing to some degree, uh, but to do something about the all-white delegations from the South uh, that are uh, still really key to the Democratic Party's power. Um, Lyndon Johnson is very worried about what these protesters are going to do at the convention. So he turns to Hoover and the FBI. Uh, he asks them to make special surveillance and infiltration squads uh, at the convention itself. So they are there uh, wiretapping people like Martin Luther King. They are posing as press reporters to interview activists. They're bringing in all of their key informants uh, to keep uh, the White House up to date. It's basically a huge spying and surveillance operation aimed at civil rights protesters at the behest of the White House um, through the lens of uh, aides like Bill Moyers, Walter Jenkins, another LBJ aide. And they're just feeding Johnson, you know, these these uh, pretty outrageous surveillance reports for the whole time that the convention is going on. Yeah. And it's like it's like unbelievably illegal. And uh, they sort of know that. But um, you have these great lines from the archives where they're just like, like, we didn't feel great about this, but like it came out well. No one caught us. And like now you made a friend in the White House. Um, right. Even so even Hoover says, wow, you know, I think Lyndon's really crossing a line <laughs> this one. And uh, but he, he was feeling like he, he needed to do this because the president asked him to. Yeah. So another sort of remarkable thing and really like the only character in this book who ended up getting, you know, being able to, to make. Herbert Hoover do what he wanted was Lyndon Baines Johnson. And it wasn't necessarily just in this um, convention story, but also in how he ended up taking on civil rights in a way in which, uh, you know, given everything else that Hoover did over the course of his career, um, was really out of character. So um, 
just like maybe a little more about that relationship and like how just like if Hoover was this good, like how good LBJ was um, in playing these sorts of games. LBJ, I think, used Hoover more and more effectively than almost any other president. Um, and that was both pushing the FBI to kind of, you know, uh, I guess, follow its better angels, and then also asking it to do some of the most outrageous things that any president has ever asked it to do. Um, you know, the, one of the big things that Johnson pushes the FBI and Hoover into is uh, civil rights enforcement. Um, he thinks it's really important to have Hoover and the FBI on his side as he's passing the Civil Rights Act uh, and then the Voting Rights Act. And uh, he gets Hoover to do a lot of things that Hoover, who is not such a big fan of civil rights enforcement, uh, doesn't necessarily want to do. Uh, Hoover personally goes to Jackson, Mississippi, and opens a new FBI field office there right after the Civil Rights Act is passed. Um, they have some success in uh, big civil rights investigations. At Johnson's behest, uh, Hoover investigates and actually has a whole COINTELPRO operation against the Klan. Uh, maybe my favorite moment and one of the strangest moments that I came across in all of this research in terms of political pageantry was when Johnson is making his big speech uh, on behalf of the Voting Rights Act, right? The famous speech where he finally says, we shall overcome and, you know, really commits himself. Right before he made the speech, he called Hoover and was like, you want to come sit in the presidential box and watch my big voting rights speech? And Hoover says, sure. And so there is J. Edgar Hoover uh, sitting next to, you know, Lady Bird Johnson cheering on uh, one of the most expansive and, and famous civil rights speeches in American history. Um, so that's the kind of, uh, I guess, the good part, in my view, of what yeah. Johnson got Hoover to do. And then there are really dark pieces to that, and many of which are also about the civil rights movement. You know, Johnson knew an awful lot about the FBI's surveillance and harassment of Martin Luther King. Um, he didn't do anything about it. Um, and he, in some ways, seems to have to, to have really enjoyed it. Um, and as the 60s go on, you know, he's really uh, pushing the FBI to go more aggressively against figures like Stokely Carmichael, other civil rights leaders. Yeah. So we don't have time for it in this episode. I encourage everyone to read it. But um, just uh, briefly for our non-American listeners, um, uh, the FBI spied on Dr. King, um, threatened, uh, basically sent him a note that had a recording of his uh, sexual escapades, um, sent it to his wife and basically told him to kill himself. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, Hoover went on TV, called King a liar. Um, and, you know, really, you know, regardless of how bad uh, 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 Martin Luther King's personal life was, it's just like an unbelievably uncalled for thing, particularly when they were very much aware that um, King had done nothing illegal and the sort of, connection like like it started because there was this 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 connection to communism from one of his um uh, um one of his new york based funders but it ended up uh sort of becoming this real um kind of pissing match like personal enmity um you know i don't like this uppity black man like type vibe um that uh you know led to a really dark place and you know there, there i think there is a pathway in which um the, if the fbi treated him differently King wouldn't have been assassinated. Um, but, um, you know, we didn't end up in that timeline because uh, Hoover was not a fan of the reverend. 
Um, I don't know. Brief, briefly on that one, Beverly. <laughs> this is, uh, yeah. Well, the King story plays a big role in the book, uh, and one of my favorite archival finds, probably the best one I will ever have, was uh, that letter that was sent to King. That threatening kind of dirty tricks anonymous letter from the FBI with the uh, reel of of tape from their bugging of his hotel rooms. Uh, that letter had been out in redacted form, but over the course of uh, doing the research for this book, I was able to to find a kind of put out into the world from the National Archives, uh, first unredacted copy of that letter, which is just incredibly outrageous, you know, aggressive, racist, demeaning language. Um, and uh, even even when you know the story, it's really shocking to imagine that the FBI was was doing that. So uh, the King story plays a, a big role in the book um, and then finally ending up, uh, as you said, with with King's assassination in 1968, which was a massive FBI investigation. Do, do you think he could have saved him? Well, I think, you know, so I don't think conspiracy theories, I don't think the FBI assassinated Martin Luther King. Sorry. So like, so like, you know, th- there was this big back and forth where um, Hoover kept saying, I don't want our FBI agents to be bodyguards. And um, if, from, from that perspective, if he was sort of more serious about trying to understand threats on these people's lives, I mean, there was this line, I think, I think it was Stokely Carmichael or maybe it was someone else where, where, oh no, it was Bridges, um, where he goes um, like, he tells he has a meeting with a civil rights leader who's like, I'm scared for my life. And he's like, sorry, sorry, dude. Like, that's the business you're in. Um, seems like, I don't know. Is it, is it, is there a, is there a world in which uh, sort of more of these, more people from this era end up living um, if his priorities are different? Yeah, I think there are two things that Hoover did that really uh, contributed to the climate in which King was assassinated. Uh, one is, you know, his incredibly aggressive public criticism, not only of King, but of the civil rights cause, um, of civil rights organizations, black power organizations, right? Uh, these were not secrets. Um, Hoover really went after them quite aggressively, both uh, in, a, in a in a private and secret way, but also quite publicly, um, and therefore gave the legitimacy of, of the FBI to, you know, enemies of of those movements. And then the second, as you say, was his uh, refusal throughout the 1960s to do what he described as guard duty for civil rights activists. Uh, But which is to say for King, as for many others, um, even when the FBI had uh, evidence of threats, they didn't necessarily pass those threats along. um, And they often refused to provide uh, security detail, even in uh, any sort of uh, combustible situation. You know, Hoover said, my men are investigators. They're not uh, police guards. But of course, you know, the police in the South uh, weren't going to do that kind of protection. Yeah. Um, and it's also like sort of the the, the steps that he takes that incur- well, two points. First, I mean, you know, the, the Trump January 6th echoes, I think, are apparent um, in sort of what you what you just said, Beverly. But also this idea of. Um, uh you know, also sort of he ended up making the 60s more radical. You talk about how the weather underground, um, you know, they weren't bombing places until um, what was it? who ended up getting what was his name? Um, you know, until a young civil rights leader, uh, excuse me, until Fred Hampton um, was basically killed by Chicago police at the behest of the um, uh, 
at the behest of the FBI. And that was sort of a real radicalizing moment for a lot of, um, you know, some of the darker left wing uh, organizations of the uh, of the 20th century. Yeah. And I think you do see, uh, particularly as the 60s go along, a kind of, you know, tit for tat relationship or a sort of escalation um, in which, you know, the pervasiveness of um, the FBI's surveillance and disruption operations, as you say, often, you know, informers being uh, involved in advocating violence, the FBI working with uh, the police who killed um, Fred Hampton, uh, you know, all of those things, you can see the ways in which this is kind of um, a, a circular process, right? People get uh, more concerned about informers in their midst. You know, there's a famous case in New Haven, Connecticut, where I am right now, in which uh, local Black Panthers torture and murder one of their own members because they suspect that he is a police or FBI informant. Um, and, you know, that kind of paranoia uh, going through the ranks uh, because there were a lot of informants, yeah. right? I mean, <laughs> really contributed to these these just kind of downward spirals uh, that often resulted in, in violence as well. Do you have 10 more minutes, maybe? Um, um, I, I, you know what? I actually have to, I could do like four, five. Okay. Um, all right. So um, I do want to go very briefly. I want to talk about sort of like, um, the, the quote unquote elder autocratic tendencies of Hoover, um, uh, sort of what happens to him and his relationship to the bureaucracy as he starts approaching his mid to late 70s. In many ways, it's kind of a tragedy for Hoover that he couldn't let go. Um, so there were a number of moments where he could have stepped down, um, you know, in 1960 was one. The Eisenhower years have been great for him new generation coming into power, he could have taken that moment and stepped away. Uh, another was 1964, 65, when he was supposed to retire by federal law. But uh, he did not do that. Uh, he could not let go. He thought the FBI would collapse. It was his whole life. And so he just stayed on as he got older and older, uh, less effective, more controversial, um, as even his own agents began to kind of joke about him, about his, you know, declining abilities, about him being out of touch uh, with the the currents of, of politics and culture in the 60s. Um, and even Richard Nixon, you know, his dearest friend in American politics in many ways, uh, sits down with him in 1971 and sort of says, Edgar, don't you think it's time? Uh, and Hoover says, no, no, I don't. And so Nixon says, uh, OK, well, um, great. Uh, I guess I won't fire you. Um, and then Hoover happens to die. And Nixon's very happy about that and sad about it when it happens. Uh, but he couldn't let go. Yeah. I mean, this sort of, you know, she, she's getting up there, too. And um, the um, uh, the sort of a few of the interesting dynamics of like, you know, these are very demanding jobs. But when you are in your 70s, like you have to sleep a lot. Um, and also, you know, the, the, the sort of cultural disconnect with the, um, uh, with the sort of new generation and ultimately what starts happening is like, yeah, if you have a boss who's like not there all the time because he like can't work, um, you know, more than 40 hours a week or what have you, you end up having subordinates just like not run stuff by them. Um, but, um, when you're the type of person who's built an organization who thinks you're the only one who can rule lead it, it ends up putting on these really these really tricky dynamics. And, you know, he's firing his like old his old bureaucrats left and right. But like his like 
inner coterie is also in their 70s and is like succumbing to like various forms of of, of ailments. So like it 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 ends up just getting really messy um uh in the end if you're running an organization like that and you don't and you're not really thinking about about stepping down or having an exit strategy. Yeah, and you really have to feel for those uh those kind of younger high-level officials who weren't young at that point, right? They were they were in their 50s but they've been waiting their whole careers for Hoover to just step aside. He won't do it. It by the end is causing all sorts of conflict in the upper ranks of the FBI and ultimately actually then causes uh, a lot of conflict after Hoover's death. You know, some of the origins of uh, the Watergate scandal are in the succession crisis at the FBI. The fact that Hoover didn't choose a successor that Nixon tries to bring in an FBI outsider. Um, the, the top man left at the FBI from Hoover's years is a guy named Mark Felt, and he is pretty mad about this, and he becomes deep throat and starts informing to the press, and, you know, the rest is history. So uh, so last question. Hopefully, uh, you know, there's someone from Hollywood who listened to this episode and is going to reach out to you for a miniseries. But, um, you know, are there are there like, do you have like a dream actor uh, or director or like, you know, pieces of this pieces of the puzzle that you think would be, uh, you know, worthy of a, of a HBO miniseries? Right. Well, I haven't done the casting in my head. There was a Clint Eastwood movie starring Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio as J. Edgar Hoover that came out about 10 years ago. And it was it was a it was a biopic of, of Hoover's okay. life. And the two challenges there that I would say, you know, my director is going to have to solve are one that Hoover really was a bureaucrat. And so he spent a lot of time just like sitting around at his desk, which is really interesting to write about, but is really hard to do well on film. And then the other is that if you do a biopic, he's there for so long. So yeah. you have to have an actor who can be, you know, young and dashing and then like kind of corpulent and elderly. And, uh, you know, I think DiCaprio, um, was a little better in the in the early and middle age. The old man makeup uh, didn't quite uh, quite hold together. Though that wasn't a terrible movie. It was actually a pretty good pretty good movie. But uh, I think we have to solve those problems. I don't think you. I don't think that's how you do it. I think it's like a Spielberg Lincoln. Like you just pick a slice. And I I thought the sort of like the the Nixon uh, the sort of the end was really was really poignant and maybe that's more like a like a drama than it is a tv like a like a play than it is a tv show um i mean like king and hoover obviously um but uh there's so much there um yeah there's a lot of drama it's true 2027 is not that well that was, well wait that's too much um uh oh last 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 thing we end every show with a song is there like a hoover song you came across well, uh, there is a song called G-Man Hoover. Okay. Um, it's, it's not a big uh, popular song necessarily. Um, no, I'm, I, you know, I tend to, to, to kind of veer in the direction of like good, uh, good kind of punk takedowns at the FBI. Those are, those are pretty fun to listen to. Okay. Beverly Gage, thanks so much for being a part of China Talk. All right. Thanks for some fun. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, G-Man, G-Man Hoover. Rat-a-tat-tat, rat a tat tat rat a tat tat rat a tat G-Man Hoover, 